Daniel chapter 11, we are, I know I said this about chapter 8, but this is one of the most prophetic chapters in all of the Bible. In fact, there are over, in just the first 35 verses, there's a hundred specific things that were prophesied that we look back on in history and we see um, the fulfillment of those. And so I would say that that is significant. In fact, I would say this, that there's really no room for neutrality, right? Like that God's word, if this is true, if all of these things, if, if Daniel wrote in the 6th century BC, these events that they would take place to the degree, to the, 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 this, the specific nature of how they would happen. And if those things happen, I would dare say this, that there is no room for neutrality. That, that it is significant, that it is proven that this came not from the mind of men, but from the mind of God. So we're going to look at those things, not all 100 specifically, but we're going to look through those. We're going to go through it rather quickly, but we do want to point out those things in Scripture. And then in uh, conclusion, uh, do want to take just a few moments and talk about just a really a defense for the early dating of Daniel, because I think that is rather significant. Because if Daniel was written in the 100 BC, like after these things happened, well, then that changes a lot, right? Like, I'm not saying that my whole faith in Christianity hinges on Daniel chapter 11, but I am saying it's rather significant that if you would say that if, if, if Daniel was written after the fact and Daniel's just writing history, he's not writing prophecy, well, then we would say that there's nothing miraculous about that, right? Um, and so, Fortunately, though, there's actually really, really good reasons for the early dating of Daniel. And the reasons for a later dating of Daniel, I think, are um, very uncompelling, personally. I don't think they hold up. I don't think that there's good reason to believe that Daniel was either written 150 B.C. after these things, or as some would even say, A.D., and, you know, somebody is just copying legends of a supposed character named Daniel. Um, those are some of the accusations and criticisms of it. But I don't think that those are compelling arguments um, at all. But we're going to look at a little bit of that. But Daniel chapter 11, verse 1. Also I, the first year of Darius the Mede, even I stood to confirm and to strengthen him. So this is an angelic being, whether it's the angel of the Lord, whether it's Gabriel. Uh, it's, it's an angelic being. That is coming alongside. He's given Daniel this prophecy. And what we find is that he says he's coming along to strengthen Darius the Mede. The, the ruler of, of this kingdom, of this region. And I won't rehash all of uh, Joe's sermon last week. A tremendous sermon. Amen. Wasn't that good? From Daniel chapter 10. Just talking about the spiritual battle that's raging. That's taking place. And, and yet we see here. That this angelic being is strengthening this king. Probably an unbelieving pagan king. So what does that tell us? That God is at work in hearts even of ungodly rulers. Amen. And so that should cause us to pray for our leaders. Even the leaders that we don't agree with. Even the leaders that we are maybe stand strongly against some of their policies. 
some of the leaders in our land that we would say there's so much we disagree with because, because they're not following righteousness, they're not following God's word, but yet our attitude should be that we pray for them. We lift them up in prayer and ask, God, would you intervene? God, would you, in some cases, restrain evil from happening? Other times, God, would you give them wisdom to make good decisions, right? Remember Jeremiah, the prophet's words to the people before they were about to go into captivity? Basically said, you're going into Babylon, but seek the good of the city. Seek the peace of the city. Because with their well-being and their blessing, you're going to be blessed. And so I think that we need to pray for our leaders. I think that we need to pray for those that God has put in government. So now, verse 2. I show thee the truth. Behold, there shall stand up three kings in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than they all. And by his strength through riches, he's going to stir up against the realm of Greece. So this in just this one verse, this is actually an amazing, true, prophetic thing that, that, that is being written, right? That there's going to be four kings in Greece, or four kings in Persia. The fourth one is going to be richer and more powerful. Well, the thing is, from history, we know that to be true, right? There's the king. There's going to be three kings coming after. The fourth one is going to be a king by the name of Xerxes. In, in, uh, he's referenced in Esther as Ahasuerus. This king is going to be the richest, and we know from history, that's exactly what was the case. Xerxes, the king of the Persian Empire, was powerful. He's rich, and he would tax people. He would invade people and steal their stuff. And so, of course, he's going to be rich. Xerxes had the longest or the, the, the biggest standing army up to that point. This is predicted. Here's what's going to happen. The angel's telling this to Daniel. That fourth king is going to be the one to stir up the, all of Greece. Right, And we know this is going to happen, that, that Greece and Persia, they're going to be in tremendous conflict. And Persia is going to appear to be the dominant, and they're going to appear to win. But what's going to happen? Well, in verse number three, there's going to be a mighty king that's going to stand up from Greece. And he's going to rule with great dominion, and he's going to do according to his will. What that means is nobody's going to stop him. And this is what we see with Alexander the Great. Now, we won't spend a whole lot of time talking about Alexander the Great, because we've made several references to Alexander the Great in Daniel 7 and 8, right? And even before that, um, brief references even further back. But Alexander the Great, he's going to rise to power. So he's a son of Philip of Macedon. And Alexander's parents are both going to be murdered. They're going to be assassinated. Alexander the Great is really just, his parents had one goal in mind of raising him. They wanted to raise a warrior king that's going to defeat Persia. And that is what Alexander the Great would do. He's going to rise to power. Nobody's going to stop him. He's going to, 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 to conquer very quickly. And we see that in as predicted in Daniel 7 and 8, he's going to conquer the known world. And we know from history, Alexander the Great conquered the known world in his early 30s. And he's going to rise um, just with great and tremendous power. But, verse 4, when he shall stand up, his kingdom 
shall be broken. It's not going to last. He says, it shall be divided towards the four winds of heaven, and not to his posterity, nor according to his dominion, which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up, even for others besides those. So this is predicting, yeah, Alexander the Great, the king of Greece, is going to rise to great power, but he's going to fall. And when he's broken, or when he dies, then his kingdom's going to be divided. The four winds of heaven is just a way of saying the north, south, east, and west. His kingdom's going to be split up. Not according to his posterity or his dominion. In other words, he's not going to pick a, a predecessor. He's a predecessor. He's not going to give it to his heir. Remember on his deathbed, he said, give it to the strong. Give it to the strong, which created a very unstable environment. He had four generals, and now two of them just kind of fizzle out. But... What we're going to look at in verses 5 all the way through verse um, 35, what this is going to be is really the king of the north and south. So the, the uh, Ptolemy and Seleucus, right? These two generals and then all of the people that are going to come after them. A huge range of about 150 years, 160 years of these, the, the, the Ptolemic and the Seleucian conflicts. And why is that a big deal? Well, as you can see, the Ptolemaic Empire and the Seleucid Empire, what's in the middle? Jerusalem, right? God's people, Israel, God's people here in uh, Jerusalem, they're, they're right in the middle. Like, this isn't a good spot if you're in Jerusalem, because you got two, you got two nations, you know, two empires, they're going to be in constant battle and constant conflict. And so, why is it that these conflicts are described and predicted and prophesied. Well, because again, it's a center focal point is where God's people are at in Israel. They're going to be caught in the crossfire, so to speak. So what's going to happen? Well, verse 5, it says, The king of the south shall be strong, and one of his princes he shall, shall be strong above him. So now this is referring to, to Seleucus I and Ptolemy I, right? Again, they're empires either side of Jerusalem, and they're going to be in conflict. So the northern kingdom, Seleucus is Seleucus I, the first, and Ptolemy um, is in the south. And what's going to happen is this, right? That the northern kingdom, Seleucus I, he's going to become more powerful than Ptolemy. He's going to rise to power. That's what it says. He shall be strong above him, and his dominion shall be great. One of, so one of his princes. And so what we know from history is this, that, that Ptolemy, or sorry, Seleucus actually served under Ptolemy for a season. And then he gained great power, and he's going to become mightier. And so there's going to be conflicts now between these kings. And in the end of years... This is going to be about 40 years. They're going to join themselves together. How are they going to join together in, 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 um, in, in agreement or in a treaty? Well, through the king's daughter of the south. She's going to be sent up to marry the king of the north. There's going to be an alliance. You know, and you, you, we look back. I mean, this is like, this is like a movie, right? <laughs> Being written. Like these two warring empires, warring kings... And now they're going to have this treaty because one of the kings is going to give his daughter to marry the other king. 
this is going to solve all the problems, right? No, no, it's going to complicate things. This is going to get crazy. So if your head's not spinning yet, I, I got to warn you, this gets, this gets crazy. Because here's what happens. So the daughter, the king of the north, right? This is now Antiochus II. The king of the south is Ptolemy II. The daughter, Berenice, so Ptolemy II, the king of the south, he's sending his daughter, Berenice, to the king of the north to marry him. So the king of the north, Antiochus II, divorces his wife, takes Berenice as his wife. But what happens, though, is that's not going to last. As soon as Ptolemy II dies, then really that whole relationship's over. Ptolemy II dies, so what does Antiochus II do? He gets rid of or discharges, divorces Berenice. He's like, yeah, I only married you for this treaty. Well, your father's dead. All right, see you later. He remarries his first wife. What does she do? She poisons him. And she has Berenice murdered and her child. I mean, this is crazy. This is what's happening, though. And, and here's what Daniel says. Here's what the angel's saying to Daniel, right? In the end of years, they're going to join themselves together for the king's daughter of the south is going to come to the king of the north for an agreement or for a treaty. But she shall not retain the power of the arm. In other words, it's going to fail. The plot is going to fail. And that's what happens. And then, oh, it gets, it gets more interesting. Verse 7 says, but, a, but out of a, a branch of her roots, Berenice, shall one stand up in his estate and shall come with an army. And shall enter the fortress of the king of the north and shall deal against them and shall prevail. So here's what happens. Berenice's brother then comes to power. And what does he do? This is Ptolemy III. Uh, he's going to invade the north and avenge his sister's death. That's exactly what he's going to do. And he's going to kill the woman that killed his sister. This is what's happening, this conflict with the, with the Ptolemies and Seleucus. In, Daniel's, in, in the book of Daniel, this is predicted. Again, Jerusalem, God's people, they're right in the middle of it. And so that's why these nations are being talked about. Verse number 9, it says, So the king of the south shall come into his kingdom. He shall return to his land. But his sons... Now we have another generation. They're going to be stirred up and they're going to assemble a multitude of great forces. And one shall certainly come and overflow and pass through and he shall return and be stirred up even to his fortress. So now they're going to go at it. They're gathering forces. They're fighting. Verse 11 and 12 talk about that the king of the south, he's going to be moved in anger and rage. And he's going to come and fight with them and the, with the king of the north. And he's going to set a great multitude, but the multitude shall be given into his hand. And she shall take away the multitude and his heart shall be lifted up and he shall be cast down many ten thousands, but he shall not be strengthened by it. So what's going to happen now is there's going to be a battle. Antiochus III versus Ptolemy Philippator. They're coming to, to battle. And in history, we know this as the battle of the elephants because they had all of these elephants that they were bringing into battle, which just... You know, it made things very chaotic. And so there's this battle, like 
I mean, over 70,000 soldiers are fighting, killing one another. And, and here's the thing. They're going to have this battle, right? And Ptolemy Philippator, after the battle, is just going to be like, all right, you know, we, we duked it out. Just going to let's go our separate ways. That's kind of his attitude about the whole thing. But not Antiochus. Like, he, he's already conniving and plotting how he's coming back with a greater army and a greater power. That's what is going to happen. And that's exactly what Daniel said would. The king of the north shall return. But he's going to set forth a multitude greater than the former. He's going to come after certain years with a great army and much riches. And in those times, many are going to stand up to the king of the south. Also, the robbers of thy people shall exalt themselves to establish this vision, but they shall fall. So the king of the north shall come and cast up a mount and take the most fenced cities. And the arms of the south shall not withstand neither his chosen people, neither shall there be any, uh, any strength to withstand. So Antiochus, he's coming back. And now he's bringing a bunch of people with him, including some of the Jews. He's going to get them involved in the battle, right? It's like, hey, I might not be strong enough to beat up this dude, but man, I got friends, right? And with my, my friends, we're going to come and we're going to, well, that's exactly what happened. He didn't care for the Jews. He just wanted to use them. He's going to end up treating them awfully, but he's just using them. He's going to really betray them. He's not letting this go. So he's coming to fight against the Egyptians and they're going to flee into a fortress. And again, all of these things that we're reading here, these are things that we read about in historical sources like, whoa, yeah, this, this, is, this is exactly what happened. Right? This is amazing. And he says that he's going to come, verse, uh, sorry, verse 15. The king of the north shall come and take up a mount, take the most fenced cities, with the arms of the south shall not withstand, neither his chosen people, neither shall there be any strength to withstand. But he that cometh against him shall do according to his own will. None's going to stand before him. And he shall stand in the glorious land, which shall be, by his hand shall be consumed. The glorious land. It's talking about Jerusalem. It's talking about Israel. And he shall set his face to enter with the strength of his whole kingdom. And he's going to give the daughter of women corrupting her, but she shall not stand on his side, neither be for him. So he's going to give his daughter Cleopatra, same type of thing. Oh, I'm going to give my daughter away, form this alliance. Well, Cleopatra is actually, as she gets older, she's not going to be loyal to her father. She's going to be loyal to her husband and to her new kingdom. This plot's going to fail as well. Right? The, the, you know the phrase, if we don't learn from history, those that don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. <laughs> well, we see, we see this as, this is true. Like, these people aren't learning. Like, no, you can't manipulate and control people and try to use romance and love and weddings and marriage and, in a way. But yet, we still try those things, right? To try to manipulate and control. And it usually doesn't work. So, now what's going to happen, verse 18... Uh, this shall he turn his face to the island or isles or island and shall take many. But a prince for his own behalf shall cause a reproach offered by him to cease. Without his own reproach, he shall cause it to turn upon him. Then he shall turn his face toward the fort of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and not be found. So what takes place is Antiochus 
the Great is going to the coastlands, and he's going to be somewhat successful in battle. But there's going to be a Roman general that's going to defeat him. And then what happens is this. Rome's going to defeat him, and then they're going to levy him, levy taxes to him and say, okay, you cause all this destruction, all these problems, now you're going to pay for this. We're going to tax you, and you're going to pay for this. Which leads us to how he falls, how he dies. He returns to his own land. Get this. He raises taxes from people, and he's got to come up with all this money to pay Rome. And he actually goes into one of his own pagan temples in his own land to rob from this temple. And the people revolt, and they kill him. I mean, what a horrible end. But this is how he comes to an end. Well, then who comes after him? Seleucus IV is going to come after him, and he's going to tax people, right? A raiser of taxes is what verse 20 says. Then shall stand up in his estate a raiser of taxes in the glory of the new kingdom. But within a few days, he's going to be destroyed, neither in anger nor in battle. So Seleucus IV comes along, and he taxes people. Why? Because they got to pay Rome back. They owe Rome all this money. So he's raising taxes. But here's the thing. He's going to actually be poisoned and die. He's not going to be destroyed. He's not going to die in battle. He's not going to die in anger as far as like there's not going to be an assassination that happens. Um, in, in, in the sense of, of like he's not violently killed. It's probably one of his own that, that gives him poison. He's going to end up dying. So this is just, okay, we're through verse 21. This is some crazy stuff happening that's predicted. And we see these events. So now this leads us to verse 21 through 35. And I promise we're not going to spend a lot of time here because we already have. This is going to lead us to a ruler, Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus IV. He gave his, his, himself the name uh, Epiphanes, meaning magnificent one, radiant one. This guy was crazy. I mean, th this guy was absolutely vile and vicious. And he is going to absolutely wreak havoc upon the Jewish people. This is a, a BC Hitler. This guy is going to cause so much destruction. It says, in his estate... And in his estate, verse 21, shall stand up a vile person to whom they're not going to give honor of the kingdom. He's going to come in peaceably and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. This is exactly what Antiochus Epiphanes did. Remember from Daniel 7 and 8, we talked about this. This guy wasn't really even the rightful heir to the throne. This guy was a, prison, a political prisoner in Rome. Somehow, I mean, you talk about manipulative you talk about cunning this guy's a political prisoner in rome and he somehow negotiates to do this prisoner swap for his nephew <laughs> and he somehow works this out where he's set free and his nephew is a prisoner now in in rome and then antiochus is going to be cunning how he's going to gain the throne he has people killed he has people mysteriously disappear. He then is, he, he gets to the throne by co-reigning with one of his nephews 
who's like a kid, <laughs> right? Like, this is like, wow. Like, first of all, how are people so dumb to fall for this? But also, too, it's like, man, this guy's very manipulative. Well, he, more than likely, he's the one that has his nephew killed. It's not really verifiable historically, but just knowing this guy, it's like a not too, you don't really have to stretch your imagination too much to think this guy's responsible. Antiochus Epiphanes takes the throne. Now he's in charge. And, and it says that he's going to start out small and he's going to manipulate his way. He's going to become strong. He says that after the league made with him, verse 23, he's going to work deceitfully. For he shall come up and shall be strong with a small people. Starting out small. Starting out, oh, this guy's no big deal. And he becomes a big deal. He becomes a big problem. He's going to enter peaceably, even into the fattest places of the province. And he shall do that which his fathers have not done, nor his father's fathers. He's going to scatter among the prey and spoil and riches. He's going to forecast devices against the strongholds for a time. He's going to stir up with power and courage against the king of the south and with their great army and... Uh, verse uh, um, 27 and 8 talk, is talking about the, the king's heart. They're going to speak to do mischief. They're going to speak lies at the table, right? So it's these two kings. They're negotiating. They're talking around the table. But it's like you don't trust either one. Like they're, they're both just manipulating. They're both just have, they're not showing all their cards. They're just cunning. They're cunning in, in battle and and it talks about some of their battles. And then verse 31, it says that the arm, an arm shall stand on his part and they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength and shall take away daily sacrifices. He's going to make it desolate. This is referring to Antiochus Epiphanes when he's going to desecrate the temple of God's people. He's going to stop them from sacrificing. He is going to set up a god, Zeus, and make people worship this false god in the temple. He's going to sacrifice pigs on the altar and it just is a total mockery a total desecration to the jews and to god and to god's people this is antiochus epiphanes this is the one we read about this evil this madman he's going to do wickedly verse 32 against the covenant and he's going to corrupt by flatteries but the people that do know their god shall be strong and do exploits in other words there's going to be resistance and we read about this in the in, in Maccab the first and second book of Maccabees. Now those books aren't scripture; they're not canonical books, but it's historical books. And what happens is Judas Maccabees is going to come to power. He is going to lead this like guerrilla warfare, and the Jews are going to fight against Antiochus Epiphanes. Remember, they gave him the name Epiphanes, means madman. This guy's crazy. The Jews despised him. The Jews hated him. And really, it's under Antiochus Epiphanes, the whole Seleucian Empire is going to start to crumble. This guy is ruthless, he's vicious, but he's just incompetent as a ruler. He cares for no one but himself. So he's going to desecrate the temple. He's going to make them worship pagan gods. He's going to kill at one point 40,000 of the Jews in two days. This guy, you talk about genocide, this guy is evil. He's going to stop the sacrifices and make them sacrifice to Zeus. He's going to defile the sanctuary, slaughter pigs on the altar. We know this in December 16th, 167 BC. This is just an absolute, just spitting in the face of Jews and in the face of God. 
but the Jewish military leader, Maccabees, is going to revolt against him. And you know what? The Jews are going to end up being successful. In 167, this starts as guerrilla warfare, but they're going to take back the temple. And in fact, December 25th, 164 BC, they restore the temple. In fact, the Jews still celebrate this day. This is Hanukkah, the festival of lights. Why? Because they got their temple back. Antiochus Epiphanes, he's coming to an end. He's going to die of a mysterious illness. God's going to let him do his thing. And that's hard for us to wrap our head around. Why would God allow so much evil? Right? It, it, that brings up the question even today. God, why are you allowing evil people to be so evil? You're powerful enough to stop him. In fact, God eventually does stop him. And do we claim to have every answer for that? No. But sometimes God is going to lift that restraining hand of evil and allow evil men to do those things. But they're going to come to an end. God raises up good men and God raises up people to stop them. And this is what God does. He's going to come to an end. And some of them of understanding shall fall to try them and to purge and to make them white, even to the time of the end, because it is not yet for a time appointed. We're going to stop in verse 35. Now, verse 36 through 45 is we're going to pick up next week. What seems to be taking place in verses 36 through 45, it seems to shift. Yes, some of those things are going to be true about Antiochus Epiphanes, but it seems like it's referring to a greater form of Antiochus, not in the sense of great good, but in more powerful, many think this is futuristic. Talking about the coming Antichrist. That Antiochus Epiphanes is actually a picture, a foreshadowing of the Antichrist that is still yet to come on the scene. This is the view that I would lean towards. Not everyone leans towards that view. Many think, or some think, hey, this was all been fulfilled, right? We talked about the, it's called the preterist view, that, hey, all of these things in Daniel were fulfilled. I still believe that some of this is futuristic, that it is yet to come, that there is going to be a reviving of the Roman Empire. Out of that, this Antichrist is going to come onto the scene. So if that peaks or perks your interest, right, about antichrist and tribulation and those things well then you're going to really want to be here next week because we're going to talk about that about the antichrist here in daniel 11 and look at revelation even thessalonians talking about the man of sin and the antichrist and again it's one of those views i think it's one of those things personally we hold loosely you know there's there's some things that i'm holding on fast to where it's like there's a line in the sand I am not stepping over that line because stepping over that line, all of a sudden you don't have the Christianity of the Bible, right? Jesus was born of a virgin. Jesus died for our sins. We were only saved through faith alone in Jesus Christ. God's word is true. God's word is infallible. It is without error. Those things that we see in scripture, like those are things, man, I'm, I'm drawing that line. And I'm not going to step across it because when you step across it, what you have is you no longer have Christianity. You've created a God. You've created a religion in your own mind that isn't what we see in scripture, right? So those are some things we're going to hold fast to. But when it comes to next week, the Antichrist, the tribulation, all of those things, I think like we hold it loosely. We hold it loosely. 
right? Because I think there's a reason that good, godly Christians who submit to God's word as their authority don't always see eye to eye on all of those things. So we're going to pick that up next week. But in conclusion, what do we do with this? What do we do with over a hundred specific things that were prophesied would happen before they happened and happened? Well, I firmly believe this. There's no room for neutrality with it. That God, if, if, if these things are true, if Daniel was written in the 6th century BC, and all of these things came to pass that he predicted, I would say this, that means we must make a decision, right? God's word is either true or it's not. Now, my faith doesn't hinge on Daniel 11 being prophetic, but I would say Daniel 11 being prophetic is a significant evidence and piece of our faith in the sense of, I think it shows that God's word is true. I think it shows this, that this book is supernatural. It didn't come from the mind of man. It came from the mind of God, right? And, and that's why, you know, people say, oh, well, you know, there's, there's all these religions. How do you know which one's right? Well, that's where you follow the evidence where it leads. I would say the reason that the reason that why we can say Christianity's true is because there's really good evidence that I think many of the other religions and cults out there don't have. Some of them have prophecy, prophecy that's failed, showing those things came from the mind of men, not God. But when you have specific prophecies that are fulfilled and it's written before it happens, I would say that's rather significant evidence that we can trust the Bible that God's word is true, that Christianity is true. So that being said, though, what we must do is this. We need to take a few moments, and we're just about out of time. But we do need to take a few moments, and I want to give you some good reasons why we can believe that Daniel was written when, when we claim it was written. Now, first of all, this really wasn't an argument until around the 1800s. Mid-1800s, people came up questioning the validity of when Daniel was written, and, and with, um, you know, and, and we see that more and more today, you know, with postmodernism and people trying to argue against miracles and argue against God's word, you see some attacks. Well, what are those attacks? Well, let's look, what are, what are the main arguments and main attacks? Because some of the random, um, really just meaningless arguments that come from every which direction, we can handle those. Let's see what are the strongest arguments. Because if we can deal with those, then some of the little random things that come up, it's like not really going to be a big deal to us. Well, the first main argument, well, first of all, we have this. I think some of the evidence is something called the Dead Sea Scroll Discovery. The Dead Sea Scroll Discovery, the, the, uh, the, the, the manuscripts, I think just about every book in the Old Testament except Esther was found in the Dead Sea Scroll Discovery. And I think that's a significant piece that we can, not just Christians, but like, professionals in that field and archaeologists like they, they would say oh the, th this was these things were dated bc like these things are old documents right you have that you have josephus a first century historian making reference to jewish tradition like with um with alexander the great remember the vision that he had and uh, and, and this priest that came out we talked about it a few weeks ago if you weren't here go back listen to the sermon it's on daniel 8 uh, but Alexander has this vision of this priest, 
or this, this man dressed in purple. Well, this priest comes out and meets him. They go into the temple and they read Daniel 8. The priest tells Alexander, hey, this is you. So that's a tradition Josephus, a first century historian, writes about from early Jewish tradition. That's, a, I think, a significant piece of evidence. But what are the arguments that come against it? Well, first of all, the first argument is really, it's an undefeatable argument. Not because it's good, it's just unreasonable. The argument is that Daniel had to have been written later because prophecy doesn't happen. It can't happen. It's just impossible. In other words, you're saying you got to take the supernatural out of it. But that's just an unreasonable argument, right? It's, it's, it's Richard Dawkins argument against the resurrection. Jesus didn't rise from the dead because dead people don't rise, right? That, that's his argument. Well, the thing is, Richard, like, you know, everyone believes in a miracle. You either believe in the miracle of the virgin birth of Jesus, or you believe in the miracle of the virgin birth of this cosmos of this world. Pick your miracle, right? Everyone believes in a miracle, so pick your miracle. I find that reason very uncompelling because, again, it's just ignoring completely any supernatural, and I think that that is a very uncompelling argument. So what's something else they'll bring up? Well, another argument they'll, they'll bring up for the, the early dating of Daniel is they say that Daniel has bad history. Daniel has bad history. But when you look at the facts and you look at the details, I think that turns on its head and actually we can see Daniel has a great history. So what are the historical issues? Belshazzar. Belshazzar never existed. This king, Daniel's just totally making stuff up. Belshazzar never existed. Nowhere in history. Until we find what? We have a picture of this. The Nabonidus cylinder. Nab cylinders. There were multiple ones. Inside these in ancient Babylon, you know what they find? What we have found is writings talking about Nabonidus, this king, leaving his kingdom to Belshazzar. Exactly as Daniel writes about. So once again, we have a case of the archaeology and historical things. The more we find, the more we discover. It doesn't shake our faith. In other words, it doesn't attack our faith. It actually adds evidence to our faith, right? So the Nabonidus cylinder makes reference to Belshazzar. Another issue they'll bring up is Darius the Mede. This guy's just totally made up. There's no historical reason to believe that he reigned. Well, there's a couple possibilities of this. Darius could have just been a title. In fact, some historians and scholars think that Darius was a title for a king in that region named Uberu, right? Kind of a goofy name, Uberu. And that's a possibility. Others think it just could be another reference to, uh, to Cyrus. Well, it seems like from the text that it's very reasonable to believe that Darius was a person that, you know, again, and that was just a title for, that it was given to him. Why? Because Daniel says multiple times about Darius, the kingdom was given to him. No, he wasn't maybe necessarily the one that came in and conquered it, but it was given to him. He was probably had another name and he was given this title, Darius, and because it was probably given to him from the Medo-Persian Empire. And so, once again, it just... 
on the surface, it seems like some of these arguments are really, really strong until you dive into the details. And you realize like, no, when you dive into the details, it actually strengthens the case for it. So I would say just the opposite. Daniel has really good historical evidence, even things like Nebuchadnezzar being a builder and just even with how the the Med, the Medo-Persian Empire, would it was very common they would keep lions. Like they just had this obsession with lions. You got Daniel in the lion's den in Daniel 6. And so I think the historical evidence actually is rather good for Daniel. The last one, and then we'll be concluded, is, well, Daniel was written in multiple languages. And that's true, right? But they're saying not one person. This was over a course of time. Hundreds of years elapsed. And it was written in sections. Well, the, again, it's one of those things. It's like, um, it's not factually wrong to say that, but it's also not the whole story, right? What, what are the other languages that it was written in? Well, one of the hangups is they say that there's, there's 15 Persian words that are used. But these are all things that have to do with the government positions. I mean, wouldn't it make sense? I mean, Daniel did work for the Persian government. Would it really be that crazy and uncommon that he wouldn't have used some of those titles and those words and used some of their lingo? Like, I, I don't think that is really a problem. In fact, here's where that argument, I think, is it turns on its head. The Persian words that are used are actually old Persian that you find, listen to this, you find nowhere before 300 BC. So if anything, I think that argument turns on its head and gives us actually a pretty good reason to think Daniel was written earlier than what some claim, oh, 150 BC, or even some that claim in the AD. So you've got some Persian words. Then you've got some Greek words. The Greek words. And here's what they say. Oh, man. Alexander the Great hadn't conquered it yet. How are they speaking Greek? Oh, man. What do you, what do you got for that one? Huh? What's your argument against that one? Well, what Greek words are we talking about? We're talking about less than half a dozen. And they're referring to instruments. Well, here's what we know from history. That... There were actually Greek merchants and people living in Babylon. And not only that, like there was stuff imported from, from Greece. Is it really that unrealistic to think that they wouldn't have had some Greek instruments that were imported into Babylon and those Greek instruments kept their names? See, these are the things that I just, I find the arguments for the, the, the late, or, you know, against the early dating of Daniel, just really insignificant and uncompelling. But those are things, you know, take it for what it's worth. Maybe you don't really care too much about that, but it's good to kind of have in the back of your mind, in your arsenal, because when you're debating with skeptics and atheists online, which I don't recommend, it's usually not fruitful, right? As somebody on the internet is wrong. I got to correct them. It's usually not fruitful, but what you'll find is, you know, they'll just kind of copy and paste some of these arguments. Oh, Daniel was written later because of the Greek. Daniel was written later because the bad history. Well, that's why as believers, I think it's good for us to be aware 
of some of these things. Because when it comes to something like Daniel, like I said, I think it's a really, really good evidence for our faith that we can see these things were specifically written before they happened and, and those things came to, to pass. I think that that's significant for us to have. And so, once again, look, for you, maybe you're like, man, Joel, I'm good. Like, I, you don't need to convince me. I believe this is the word of God. My, my faith isn't shaken in that, you know, but honestly, it, maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's your grandkids. Their faith is going to be shaken one day. And what I want for us as a church, what I want for my kids is that they have a confidence and an unwavering faith that God's word is true. And the reason for that is because you know what? Hey, we're all adults. I know some young, some, some teens, some younger ones in here, but like, hey, we've seen life, right? We've been hit by traumatic things in life. We've been disappointed by believers. I, look, I don't want your faith to be in me. Now, I don't want to hurt you or disappoint you, but like, look, we're friends, right? Like we know one another. I've already let you down. Like I've already disappointed you guys and I'm not trying to, but I'm just at best, I'm a sinner being sanctified. I, I want to be there for you and I, I want us to have meaningful relationships because that's important. But I promise you, if I haven't yet, at some point, I'll let you down. Your faith can't be in me. Your faith can't be in me. Your faith can't be in a person because you know what? What's going to happen is when, when your world is absolutely rocked, when you get horrible news, when there's death of loved ones, when there's betrayal of relationships, when someone religious, a pastor or leader or friend that you trusted, somebody that you thought, man, that is a, a solid Christian, and then they, they hurt you or disappoint you, or worse, or worse, you find out like they weren't, they weren't who you thought they were. It's not just they fell. It's not just they gave in to temptation, but you find like, oh man, they, they, they completely like had everybody fooled. Those things can rock us. Those things can shake us. And I'm not belittling those things and saying they're not a big deal. But my point is this. I want you. I want my kids. I personally want to know I can be confident that God's word is true. And that way, you know what? Yeah, maybe I'm disappointed by people. Maybe there's times I'm even angry at God for allowing circumstances and things to come. Like, I'm just being real, right? I'm just being honest. Like, sometimes we have those thoughts. But I want, even in the midst of those times where it seems like, man, our faith is shaken, deep down, I want us to have a confidence that God exists, that his word is true, that God is in control over all, and that God cares about your individual life. And situation and he has a purpose in it and i want that to be ingrained deep down in our hearts because we're going to need that kind of faith we're going to need a faith that is going to be unwavering i'm not saying it won't be tested i'm not saying there aren't going to be times where we truly wonder god what are you doing god i'm having a hard time trusting you in this that's going to happen but deep down i want us to know that we can trust god that we can trust the word of God because God's word is true. Let's pray. God.